And hello, friends. It's time once again for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Today on the show... Think of it in a very simple way. How do we figure out what's out there in the world? How do we figure out what really happened? That is a question that Errol Morris has been posing over and over again over the last three decades in his films, in his work as a private detective, and in his writings. And it's a question that comes up a lot in a series of conversations that I've been having with Errol Morris over the past year. The first was an interview I broadcast in the fall of 2011 about his recent book, Believing is Seeing, on truth and deception in photography. The second is the one you're about to hear, which gets into Errol Morris's career as a filmmaker and his investigations of various crimes and possible miscarriages of justice. This interview was recorded some months back, but it's being broadcast for the first time today. And next week, a third installment, a more recent interview in which we discuss some of Errol's current projects. So why, you might be asking, so much talk with one guy? Well, it's because Errol Morris's fixations happen to so heavily overlap with those of this radio program and this radio host. That's why. And uh, I want to give you a little background on things mentioned in this interview and not fully explained. There is the case of Jeffrey McDonald, an army doctor convicted of killing his pregnant wife and two young daughters in 1970. It was a sensational case in its day, with lots of contradictory evidence and a number of people, including McDonald himself, maintaining his innocence. And then there's the legendary Wisconsin serial killer and corpse mutilator Ed Gein, who supposedly influenced horror films like Psycho and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Errol also made reference to his philosophical and investigative essays for the New York Times and the famous and possibly apocryphal bet he is said to have made with Werner Herzog, in which Herzog vowed to eat his own shoe if Errol Morris completed his first film. And that is just a partial list of the curiosities discussed in the hour to come. Stay tuned. Hi, Errol. How are you? I'm okay. How are you? I'm fine. I hear you're working on another book. I am. What's this one about? Well, I have, I mean, it's absurd. I have contracts on two books. Both are New York Times related, as is the first book. But in an odder way, I started writing about the Jeffrey McDonald murder case. I thought I would write, again, an extended essay for the Times. And then it got more and more and more extended to the point I found I had 100,000 words. So I asked my editor at the New York Times, can we publish this in 30 installments? And he said that he thought it was going to be very, very difficult to convince the op-ed editors to run a 30-part series on a 40-year-old murder case. So I showed it to my agent, Scott Boyers, who is now publisher of Penguin Press, and he bought it immediately for Penguin, saying that uh, it was a book and that they wanted to publish it. So here I am uh, trying to finish a second book, a title that I've wanted to use forever, and I think it's perfect for this project, so I'm finally getting to use it, A Wilderness of Error which comes from Edgar Allan Poe. So, uh, Jeffrey McDonald murder case. And 
I've almost finished it. I'm still investigating. That's the problem. So, so you're reinvestigating the case? Yes and no. I mean, it's very, very hard to investigate a case that is so old. These murders occurred in February of 1970. It's a long, 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 long time ago. The way I think about it is it's on the edge of history. I'm almost uh, writing about a historical event rather than investigating a true crime. Mm. That in itself is interesting. But you felt that despite the fact that this is an incredibly high-profile crime, the fact that it was the subject of a a very well-known book, uh, by Joe McGinnis, and then uh, Joe McGinnis and his interaction with Jeffrey McDonald was the subject of another famous book by Janet Malcolm. You felt there were some stones unturned? Uh, yes, I do. TV movie, best-selling book, book by Janet Malcolm, yeah. ra-la-la-la-la. Yeah. Also <laughs> a book that was not well-known, a reinvestigation of the McDonald murders by... Fred Bost and Jerry Potter called Fatal Justice. Given all of that, yes, I think there's a very powerful story that has not been told, and it has a lot of my very favorite themes running through it. Well, it sounds like an Errol Morris film to me. Why is it a book instead of a film? It probably should have been a film, except that I could never get anybody to step up and pay for it. Wow. Well, you know, I have, I would say, dozens of projects that fall in that category over the years if people didn't want to pay for them or I didn't pursue them because of one reason or another. I mean, I tried, actually, to get someone to pay for a McDonald project on a number of occasions. And I wanted to make a bigger movie. I just didn't want to shoot interviews. I wanted to do something more complex and more involved. But there were no takers. That's a story in and of itself, by the way. I could write the story of trying <laughs> to make a movie out of the McDonald's story unsuccessfully. And so now that I'm writing, I thought, hell with it. I'll write this. And people tell me someone's going to buy it as a movie. But uh, who knows? That was not the reason to do the book, certainly. Um, well, you know, I wanted to go back to the beginnings of your career. Uh and ask how you became a filmmaker. But I, I also wanted to ask about this interest in murderers. You, you, as a young man, were fascinated by mass murderers, and you spent quite a long time learning about and uh, interviewing the famous uh, killer Ed Gein in Wisconsin. Uh, you interviewed other mass murderers, I understand? Yes. Uh, what, what, what was that about? Hard to know, ultimately, what any of this is about. <laughs> I'm not sure, I suppose would be the most honest answer. I was very angry at the time. I was getting thrown out of one graduate school after another. And I often said, much better to interview mass murderers than become one, which I think is doubtlessly true. (laughs) If that's the choice you face, yeah. (laughs) One time I was thinking of writing a doctoral thesis on the insanity plea. So I was really interested in cases where some kind of psychiatric element, whether it was the insanity plea or something like 
the insanity plea or diminished responsibility. So the cases that I followed, um, Ed Gein is a perfect example of someone who was first found incompetent to stand trial and then subsequently tried and found not guilty by reason of insanity. Those issues are central themes in that whole story. Um, And they were an important element in almost every single story that I became fascinated by. Um, The question of motivation. Why did this person do these things? And when we talk about a person being insane, what do we actually mean? Uh, we have all of these rules and all of this language and how we define insanity in the law. But what are we really talking about? That was a big part of what interested me in my mid-20s. Looking at your films, um, I would say a couple of the themes in that area come up again and again. I mean, one is one is clearly death. It's there in so many of your films, mortality. And another is how much are people responsible for what they do and how much do they know themselves? Yes, I think that's absolutely true. Um, I wanted to be a writer when I was in my 20s, and I had terrible, terrible trouble. I don't know if I use this as an excuse for myself or not, but when someone hires you to write, it makes an incredible difference. When I was first asked to write for the New York Times, I didn't think I could write. I hadn't written in 20, 30 years. And I hadn't certainly written for publication. I didn't think I could do it. But the fact that they expected me to do it and were confident, actually, that I could do it allowed me to do it. And I started writing a great deal. But in my 20s, I could never get a book deal. or I could never figure out a way to continue this writing career which is unfortunate because I think a lot of the work that I was doing then is incredibly interesting. Well, did film seem like something that you could do without that kind of restraint? Documentary felt like something I could do without having to write something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, In advance. I often have thought that I became a documentary filmmaker because of my troubles with writing and that my form of writing became interviewing. I, uh, I would interview people. I would do these interviews. And somehow uh, a script would come out of it, which is true, actually. It's an odd kind of script. It's an odd kind of uh, way of working. But that's, in fact, really uh, what I did. Uh, yeah, and I, I, I would then jump to maybe your first completed film, the gates of heaven, and say, yeah, it's always felt to me like an essay uh, written with other people's words. And the same, I, I might say, of Vernon, Florida, your second film. Uh, if I had to categorize them, documentary doesn't quite do it. Well, that's interesting that you would say that. But why do you think documentary doesn't quite do it? Now I should interview you. <laughs> Go ahead. I'd love that, because uh, I've always wanted to know how you interview people. But well, I mean, I, and I know th- enough about you to know that you've had this argument with traditional documentary film about the the, uh, the style and um, conventions of verite cinema, 
that is that that cinema should look like it's you know like you're immersed in the action like you're a fly on the wall like you're an observe a casual observer and instead you made these films that uh break all those rules uh you stage certain scenes and uh it's certainly got no handheld or very little handheld camera work in it or any of the other trappings of, of verite documentaries right so in, instead of documenting something objective out there i i really felt like you were making some fascinating statements or asking some fascinating questions using the subjects in your film and there's so many odd moments that seem to have been selected out of your own private agenda or your own idiosyncrasies i mean one that stands out for me is the pretty much in the middle of the film i think it is uh this is a film by the way for our listeners sake uh that involves a pet cemetery in northern california in the Santa Clara Valley area that's had to be dug up and, and all of the pets exhumed because the, the guys who ran it ran out of money uh, and the, the land was being taken from them. Uh, and then you later go to another pet cemetery where some of those pets had to be moved in Napa Valley, a very different kind of pet cemetery. But in the middle you have this prolonged monologue with this old lady uh, sitting in her doorway just talking about her life. Uh, and it is such an, you know, a strange choice that, again, it makes me think I'm, I'm in the world of poetry. I'm in the world of composition, uh, artistic composition, maybe not in the world of just straight up attempt to capture what most people think of as a journalistic kind of story. Yes. <laughs> Sorry for the long winded statement there. But no. Journalism is such an odd and interesting uh, thing. What falls under the rubric of journalism? I mean, I sometimes think of journalism and history as being kind of the same thing, except for the fact that journalism happens quickly. And history often happens at great remove, at least chronological remove from the events that it's chronicling. I think it's about two things, the two things that really, really interest me. is What happened and why did it happen? And that's at the heart of my obsession with the Jeffrey McDonald murder case, because we have two ongoing mysteries throughout the whole damn story. Who killed whom? Were there intruders in that house? Was McDonald himself responsible for these murders? And regardless of of whether it's A or B, the difficulties we have in determining what the motive for this crime or these three crimes could be. He was a Green Beret doctor who was convicted of killing his wife and two young daughters. But almost all of the mysteries that fascinate me about journalism and the history are contained in this story, in this case. So it's, in many ways, um, the perfect story for me to write about. Uh, yeah, of course, it, this will remind a lot of people uh, of The Thin Blue Line, where you investigated uh, another um, murder and uh, very famously found that the guy who was on death row for the crime was the wrong guy. Uh, you managed to get the, the right guy to say some incriminating words on tape. And uh, 
exonerate, help exonerate uh, the falsely accused guy. Yes. Um, so, but going back to the McDonald murder, uh, that ain't going to happen, right? I mean, it's far too late for that. So the outcome is at best going to be to maybe introduce some new facts into the historical record? Well, I don't think it is too late no? for anything. McDonald is still alive. He's been in prison for now 30 years. Are you thinking that, I mean, I don't want you to give the show away, but are you thinking that you might have some exculpating evidence? I think that I do have new evidence. And um, there, there are really two issues in this story. Yes, the story of who did it and the story of why these murders occurred. There's also the tangled story of, of how we try to deal with investigating a story. Think of it in a very simple way. How do we figure out what's out there in the world? How do we figure out what really happened? Um, the Thin Blue Line is often described as, okay, this, this is the movie and the investigation that got an innocent man out of prison. And that's true with us, something I'm very proud of, something which I did. It kind of amazes me, but I did do it. But one of the things that's most fascinating, at least to me, about the Thin Blue Line, about the investigation I did, is it was an investigation into error. It's an investigation in how this kind of terrible mistake could be made. I mean, this is kind of a travesty of what we believe justice to be about. Justice convicts the guilty uh, and frees the innocent. And if the result is the opposite of that, how come? How did that happen? In fact, the film makes it clear that everything that, that could be done wrong was done wrong. I mean, they had a guy, uh, David Harris, who had a, a history of violence and uh, clearly should have been their suspect. Instead, they went after a guy who had nothing to do with the crime whatsoever. They believed witnesses or, or helped coach witnesses uh, who were completely non-credible. Uh, they ignored all kinds of evidence. It was just malpractice, wasn't it, from beginning to end? I don't know whether malpractice is the right word, but it's, it's confusion. It's following a narrative that they believe to be true that inevitably led them to neglect certain kinds of evidence or not even to look for certain kinds of evidence, to leave assumptions unchallenged, uninvestigated. Then also fascinates me how our beliefs blind us to actually the possibility of seeing the truth. Many of my stories are about how we avoid the truth, uh, not how we seek the truth, or the obstacles that we put in our uh, way to finding the truth, almost as if we would like to turn our back on it and head in the opposite direction. So this new book, Wilderness of Error, is certainly about about that theme as much as anything. Can we go back to that uh, that little old lady in uh, Gates sure. of Heaven for a minute? Yes. Um, why is she there in the film, and why do why do you give her something like five minutes to talk in roundabout ways about her about her life in the middle of this film that 
otherwise uh, it concerns these two pet cemeteries? Uh, <laughs> I met her. She was probably the first person, really, that I met uh, when I was making this movie. They were digging up this pet cemetery. The land had been purchased, and later condos were built on the site. She was there with a nurse's aide and was clearly traumatized. And I talked to her very briefly. I actually tried to film her. And that's another story in and of itself. Um, I approached the car. She was in this car, distraught. And we had a camera, and I talked to her. And she said, this is on film. I may even have it somewhere. Uh, here today, gone tomorrow. And the sound woman interrupted her. Couldn't believe it. I fired my first three cameramen. <laughs> interrupted her because Florence had said, here today, gone tomorrow, right? And so she said, no, wrong. And often I would say, I can't, I can't figure out what irritated me more. The fact that she had said wrong because Florence was right. Here today, gone tomorrow, right. Um, that was irritating. Correcting her for something that she should never have been corrected for, and even more offensively, interrupting her. Uh, so I, I, uh, I got rid of those guys. But Florence clearly was fabulous fabulously interesting and so we arranged i found out where she lived and i came back and then i shot that that i don't know what you would call it it's certainly not an interview but it's a stream of consciousness mm -hmm. narration a kind of creed occur i don't know how i would even describe it um where she really tells in a matter of minutes the story of her life yeah uh and a story that uh, it takes uh, a number of turns. I mean, she at one point she says, oh, it, it's been really good, I'm very grateful. And at another point she starts complaining and making it sound kind of bad. And you get to watch the various ways in which we construct, uh, uh, you know, a, a coherent story about ourselves, when in fact, I'm saying we, at least this is true of me, <laughs> don't really know whether it's a good or bad story, you know? Well, it's it's a kind of strange nightmare-like story. Yeah. Yeah, she is one of the most incredible characters. So why is she included in the movie? I have really no excuse except for the fact that it's one of the best the best pieces of filmmaking I've ever done. That's my excuse. I love it. Well, uh in your next film, Vernon Florida, tell me what was what was the idea behind that film? I, I know what it turned into, but did it start out that way? Um a visit to this tiny town in Florida and a series of conversations with guys I'm calling in the most affectionate way possible, old codgers, uh, about their views of things metaphysical, natural, uh, you know, philosophical. I had gone down to make a movie about a clipping that I had, I guess that's the best way to describe it. It was less than a paragraph, but it appeared in the New York Times Sunday Magazine. 
and it was an article about an insurance investigator talking about the worst cases in his career as an investigator. And he mentioned Nub City. Nub City was the name of a place in northwest Florida where there had been this extraordinary history of self-mutilation, people cutting off their arms and legs after taking out insurance policies. And I thought, good God, I should find out more about this place. I went to see him in the office in Manhattan, and he told me a little bit about Nub City, but he told me, under no circumstances should you ever go down there. It's an incredibly dangerous place. Don't even think of going to Nub City. And I kept saying, well, what's the real name of the place? And he didn't want to tell me, and I kept asking again and again. And then I finally got it out of him. It was Vernon, Florida. And so I dutifully drove down to Vernon, and I ended up living there for a good part of a year. Of course, I couldn't make a movie about Nub City. I certainly couldn't make a documentary movie about Nub City. You can't knock on someone's door, say, the home of a double or single amputee, and ask them, well, hey, how did you lose the leg, or how did you lose the arm? Uh, Why not? Why not? Well, I'll give you an example why not. Um, I'm the kind of person who probably should be beaten up every day of his life, but I've only been beaten up once, and that was actually enough. (laughs) I got it out of my system. (laughs) That's what I was looking for. I... um, I would not like to repeat the experience. It was incredibly unpleasant. But I knocked on the door of a double amputee who's missing an arm and leg on opposite sides of the body, which was the preferred technique, so that you could use a crutch. Um, I knocked on the door of a double amputee, and his buff son-in-law, a Marine, beat me up. Really? So you did ask a question, and you ended up thinking better of it, huh? I decided it was, whatever it is I was doing, it was really, really stupid. <laughs> and uh, dangerous. Bad day you in Blackrock. You don't go down but... <laughs> into the swamp. If someone, let's put it this way, because I've always wanted to make a feature film about Nub City, and I had a tagline, which is more than a tagline, because I can speak of it through personal experience. My tagline was, if they would do this to themselves, think of what they would do to you. <laughs> and I have more than a passing acquaintance with this kind of thing I might have. Oh, my God. Oh, jeez. One question, though, about the um, the amputations. Uh, yes. Before we get to the movie that and actually... I hope, I hope this is not because you're <laughs> contemplating doing something like this yourself. No, but were they doing it with surgical supervision under anesthesia? How were they cutting off their limbs? Um, everything you could imagine. It started off... Um, there was supposed to be a criminal doctor down there who was taking a... A slice of the cut, no pun intended. Of course, the pun is intended, but you're supposed to say no pun intended, even when a pun is I know, I know. It's one of the worst expressions. (laughs) But, um, yeah, there was a criminal doctor, but a lot of people just, you know, took it, you know, know, uh, into their own hands or hand, if you prefer, um, 
uh, a guy fell asleep, or so he claimed, with his foot over a railroad track and um, was woken up by the Evening Express. And another guy was climbing a tree with a shotgun, and another guy lopped it off in a bandsaw accident. So you name it. And they all had good death and dismemberment uh, policies. Yes. Wow. Who'd have thought? Although one guy, one guy who was illiterate, had failed to understand the provisions of his policy and lopped off a hand uh, before the policy actually took effect. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, yeah. Late to the dance. Wow. Um, but what did come out of this this uh, sojourn to Vernon is a, is a, is a wonderful film. Uh, and again, a series of conversations with these old coots, mostly, uh, offering up theories of things. I mean, I'm going to play a little clip right now. This is a guy talking about the brain. You ever seen a man's brains? Oh, I've seen them. I take them up, scoop them up, put them in, do, a re- do them up like brains. You're buying brains. But there's a bowl right here, and there's a bowl here, a bowl here, and a bowl there. Now, they're connected to the spine. The spine goes down the backbone. And uh, if all four of these uh, bowls of brain, if all four of them is functioning, you can, you're not a one-track mind. You're a four-track mind. And you can, you can, I see a lot of folks, they can type one letter, uh, write me a letter and you a letter on the type machine and writing on one way with this hand and writing your letter with this hand and my letter with that. Okay, that was a clip from Vernon, Florida, and let me describe the scene. This is a, a guy standing in front of what looks like a store and describing to you how the brain has uh, a four balls, he calls them. I guess he means lobes, and when they're working together, you have a four-track mind. And then he proceeds to demonstrate how he can do multiple things at once. Well, he can write cat shit with one hand and dog shit with the other. <laughs> he doesn't do that in the film. <laughs> yes, he does. Well, he, he, he moves his hands. He didn't say... He, he, says, he says in the film, cat shit and dog shit. Well, golly, I, you know, he's hard to understand, so I totally missed that part. Well... Look at it again. I will. Please be my guest. I, I, no, that's, that, that just opens a whole new world for me. But you have a series of conversations with these guys. There's a turkey hunter who talks with unbelievable passion about, you know, stalking turkeys. There's a guy who raises, what is it, worms, earthworms, the night crawlers? Yes. Uh, talks about that. Uh, oh, there's one guy who talks about the stars and planets what captured your fancy there, and what made you think you could make a movie out of that? Uh, <laughs> have I characterized the film right at this point? You have, actually. I'm not sure what what made me think I could make a movie out of it. I think desperation, because I'd gone down to make one kind of movie. It was clear that I was not going to be making that movie, or if I was going to be making that movie, I wasn't going to be living to tell about it. And so I had to come up with something else. And gradually, this strange story emerged. Good God. Um, I still want to make Nub City. I, I, uh, I don't know. 
Well, if I if I had any money, I'd bankroll you. Absolutely. Well, thank you. Um, Vernon, though, in, in Vernon, Florida, um, you know, first of all, you had a, you have a background in, in, in subjects like philosophy, but here you are talking to these are obviously not you know these are not university people. These are as just plain folks as you can get, and none of them amputees. I should add. At least I didn't see any missing limbs. No. Um, uh, you know, talking in ways that it's easy to giggle at. You know, documentary film has a, a kind of um, symbiotic relationship with oddballs going way back, right? Yes. Um, but were you were you giggling? Did you want people to giggle? Oh. Um, you know, my movies are funny, so to say that that I don't want people to find them funny would be disingenuous. Of course I want people to find them funny. Um, I find them funny. I, th- I find them strange, absurd, rich, horrifying, provocative, lots of different things. Funny is certainly one of them. Yeah. And it's certainly true of my most recent film, Tabloid, which I think is incredibly funny and also incredibly sad. It's a whole range of different things. Um, one of the characters in, in Vernon, Florida, is this old man who has a variety of animals in a small cage in his yard uh, that he pulls yeah. out one by one. Uh, he has a, a tortoise, which he describes as a gopher for some reason. I think it's a kind of turtle, a gopher turtle, yeah. Oh, is that right? Okay. Uh, yeah. yeah. I couldn't make sense of that at all. That, that was, yeah. That was truly weird to me that he was calling it a gopher, but now I understand. And he has a, a possum. And uh, he pulls his possum out and describes how he's holding it by the tail, but he describes how he's been bitten by all kinds of things while he holds his possum and talks to you. Um, I can't help but ask, though, uh, that that character reminded me of another character I saw in a Werner Herzog film years ago, uh, Fata Morgana, a guy in the um, Sahara, I think holding a lizard and, and talking. Yeah. Oh really? Yeah, and he talks, and, and he's been bitten by this lizard. I don't, I can't remember whether he's actually being bitten in the film, but he has this deadpan way of talking, and he reminds me so much of that old man holding the possum, again deadpan, kind of an absurd pose, talking about being bitten by the animals he has. There was no um, deliberate reference there, though, was there? No, but Fata Morgana is a film that did influence me. I mean, it's part of part of the reason that I became a filmmaker is this, is this whole story, of course, about Werner and me and the eating issue, et cetera, et cetera, which I don't ever remember the bet, and I never really <laughs> wanted to be involved with the shoe eating. <laughs> no, no, by the way, you did not eat the shoe. He ate the shoe. That's correct. Uh, on film. Les Blank filmed it, um, and, uh, and that was a result of him losing a bet with you. Supposedly. I don't remember the bet. <laughs> I think he made it up. Anyway, <laughs> I was enormously influenced by Herzog's earliest films, um, m- many of which I saw at the Pacific Film Archive in the early 70s. Uh, Fata Morgana was among them. Fata Morgana was an incredible influence on me. I haven't seen Fata Morgana believe it or not, since I probably saw it in the early 70s. I don't know what year it was made, probably in the early 70s. Probably saw it shortly after Werner made it. But all of those movies, The Ecstasy of the 
great sculptor Steiner, Fata Morgana, Land of Darkness and Silence, all of those early movies were incredibly influential. Because, just think of it, um, documentary in those days was mostly what appeared on public broadcasting. Um, and the whole idea that there was a world of nonfiction, radically different from anything that you would normally expect, for the most part, people were just unaware of it. And the line that I, I quote often it was a Paris Review interview with Gabriel Maria Marquez. Uh, he is telling the story of when he was a very young man. He read Kafka's short story, Metamorphosis, uh, where Gregor Samsa is transformed into a gigantic dung beetle. And Marquez reads the story and says, I didn't know you were allowed to do that. <laughs> And I think it's a really important, important intuition. Um, the work of other people, when it's really inspiring, it, it does a whole number of things. It gives us permission, or at least it gave me permission, to think about documentary in a completely different way uh, than people were thinking about it in those days. To create something completely different and new. Yeah, and, uh, you know, certainly Fata Morgana reminds me again of that term I used earlier, which is essay. I mean, I, I've always found documentary to be an a inadequate word for it, but I know you're, you're saying that documentary can be so much more than the traditional definition. But Herzog takes these images and these scenes from a variety of places uh, and weaves them into this, I don't know what to call it, a, a meditation, some kind of lyric construction it doesn't tell a story. Um, I mean, how would you characterize it? Um, I don't know how I would characterize it. it. It creates a kind of different genre. Yeah. It is certainly um, a meditation. It is poetic. It is lyrical. It's also preternaturally strange. Yes. Uh, if you're uh, opening a door into some totally unexpected landscape and world that exists out there somewhere. You know, it's on that edge between the uh, the real and the surreal. <laughs> well, that's that's an area that you, you inhabit a lot in your films, I think. I mean, um, when I saw Vernon, Florida, Fata Morgana came to mind right away, and I, I thought, you know, this is Errol Morris saying, you don't even have to go to the Sahara, as Herzog did. Uh, you can just go to some backwater town in Florida and find amazingly strange and um, otherworldly things in ordinary well, places. Well, it's my usual conversation with Werner. Um, we were having dinner at uh, Chateau Marmont about a year ago, I believe, and he was just back from some exotic location, <laughs> whether it was Mongolia or Chad or wherever, you know, telling stories about it. And um, I had just finished... Uh, tabloid and my interviews with tabloid were all just shot in a studio and they were shot in a studio in the valley um, in Van Nuys uh, at this one stage that I, I often use and so I was telling Werner I said well you know I know exactly what you're talking about because I, 
I, uh, I have just come back from one of the most isolated, removed, depraved places on the face of the earth. And he said, whoa, where was that? <laughs> and I said, well, Van Nuys. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, uh, I, I'll stick to my gut. <laughs> I think it, it holds up against Mongolia and Chad any day of the week. <laughs> um. You know, Gates of Heaven and Vernon, Florida, um, aesthetically um, seem like they belong to, say, your early period. Um, well, it's the early period because no one would give me money to make movies. <laughs> the early period is a result of just being out of work. Well, there's a, there's a huge um, stylistic change, though, that happens between them and the next film, Thin Blue Line. Yes. Uh, I mean, they're shot on location. There, there are a series of mostly of interviews on location, and then Thin Blue Line and, and and most of the remainder of your films. I mean, are these much more elaborate constructions with a, a mix of uh, a lot of studio type interviews, a lot of um, beautifully shot recreations and reenactments, a lot of archival materials, old films, old photographs, headlines from newspapers, and beautiful musical scores. Uh, and that's like what everybody would think of as the Errol Morris style. But what yes. what what happened to you between Vernon, Florida, and the Thin Blue Line to make that that sort of radical change? I think it's unemployment. No one for so long. I had no money. Uh, I made v- Vernon, Florida, and then I didn't get to make another movie again for five six years. And I didn't have really a way to earn a living. I worked as a private detective. I did a lot of different things. But um, it was a very dark and very depressing uh, period. But you had evolved somehow this language um, that is all your own. It's been very influential, I think, that is so aestheticized. I mean, actually, the first two films were quite aesthetic as well. Uh, but in a, a less obvious way. I mean, yes. you know, I had, you know, I have just files and files of films that I proposed following Vernon, Florida. And my wife often jokes a lot of these ideas. They were many of which were tabloid ideas. Uh, my wife says. There's entire television channels devoted to these kinds of movies that no one wanted to make in uh, the 80s. And that's unfortunate. I don't know whether it's me or them or a mixture of me and them, but I was just not making movies. It was also a time there was no, remember, no independent cinema in America. Independent cinema is something that really came out of the 80s. And really, the '90s. Um, my uh, my first films were shown at the New York Film Festival, both Vernon and Gates of Heaven. The year that Gates of Heaven showed, there was a newspaper strike in New York. This was 1980, and this was 1978. Uh, long time ago, and newspaper strike. No one wrote about it. It was almost like it never happened. And it would be like it never happened, save for the fact that there were these two critics, television critics, mind you, 
so they weren't subject to that newspaper strike, at least in New York, to television critics that started reviewing Gates of Heaven, and they reviewed it in 1988 and 89 four times. They kept reviewing it again and again and again and again. And I really believe it's a result of those two critics that I still am a filmmaker. They kept me going. They made me see myself as a filmmaker at a time when very, very few other people did. And that's, of course, Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, I know uh, Roger Ebert is a, is a huge fan of Gates of Heaven. Um, so is Gene. Gene, oh, yeah. of course, died tragically. But they were both very much in my corner, and I owe them both uh, a, a, a deep debt of gratitude. Well, you know, um, my, my question was um, about this guy who, who makes two films, very original, idiosyncratic films, but most people who don't know much about film, I think, would see them and not necessarily remark on the filmmaking itself, on the craftsmanship, on the uh, imagery, or maybe the, the camera work. Uh, they're, they're kind of, um, what can I say, they're kind of, what's the word I want? They're unostentatious. Uh, in their style. But then, with The Thin Blue Line, you come out with this dazzling cinematic experience. Beautiful slow-mo, beautifully lit scenes. Uh, Philip Glass score. And this is the mature Errol Morris style that's continued to evolve. Did you go into the laboratory and, 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 and perfect that? Or what did you do to come up with that? I don't know. I really don't. I know that that as I started to put the Thin Blue Line together, I knew that the reenactments were essential. Reenactments, whatever you want to call them, these lyrical um, pieces that brought you into the mystery of the case. I mean, I was investigating a murder. I was really out there in a hands-on way, talking to people, going through documents, copying files, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. For all intents and purposes, I was a hands-on private detective, even more than I was a filmmaker. And part of what I wanted to achieve in those, in those visual passages in The Thin Blue Line was to take the audience. I think I constantly am trying to do this. I'm certainly trying to do this in this current book, to take the reader, at least in the case of a book, into the experience of investigating a crime, in both instances investigating a murder. If you can be put in that position of dealing with evidence, of trying to figure out what something means, then I think I've done my job. And there are moments in the Thin Blue Line that I'm very proud of. For me, one of the great mysteries, five witnesses against Randall Adams uh, who testified against him, the policewoman, the real killer who said he was seated in the passenger seat right next to the driver and saw Randall Adams shoot the police officer, and three people who were passing by, uh, two people in one car, another person in another. So I, I got to all of those five people. 
And, of course, the question is, like, what really did they see? How reliable was their testimony? And as it turns out, uh, not reliable. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Horrendously suspect in every single instance. And, and, and this is me. This is my kind of obsessiveness. You know, the question, where was the policewoman when her partner got shot? Was she inside the car drinking her milkshake, or was she out in back of the suspect vehicle where she should have been? Yeah. Well, if she was sitting in the police car, seated in the police car, she probably didn't see much of anything. And the fact that the police had done a diagram where they showed where this milkshake that she was drinking landed was pretty much powerful evidence that she was in the car when her partner was shot, opened the door, threw the milkshake away, and ran forward as the car sped away, and in all likelihood saw nothing, Mm -hmm. or next to nothing. So the milkshake, or I shoot the milkshake, these aren't reenactments. This is not like, you know, what I think it would have looked like (laughs) if you had been sitting there. It's, It's some strange detail that I have snatched out of of a story and forced the audience to scrutinize and to think about what does that milkshake toss mean? Where does the fact that it landed where it did uh, tell us about where she was when her partner was shot? But, but rather than sort of call it out and break down the scene and get all forensic about it, you have a, a, a milkshake flying through the air in slow motion, again, beautifully lit. You turn it into an object of beauty, uh, as you do so many of these, uh, what I call recreations. I'm not sure what to call them. These vignettes. Neither am I, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but these are, have become you know, a major part of your, of, of your movie making, and they are gorgeous, even when the subject matter is incredibly ugly. I was just watching uh, Standard Operating Procedure, for the second time, this is your film about the Abu Ghraib uh, prisoner abuses, uh, and you have a lot of again recreations, reenactments in there, and they're all gorgeous. I mean, w- this waterboarding scene and other scenes of horrific stuff are turned into these uh, th- these objects that are just sort sort of eye candy almost, um, uh, which I'm not saying undermines the point you're trying to make with the film at all, but I'm I'm curious as to to how you. Um, how you feel your aesthetics relate to the to the subject matter? Well, we're taking we're taking stuff. We're not really showing reality. Yeah, we're asking you to think about details. And so, in recreating material in standard operating procedure, I'm I'm asking you to think about the photographs and as things which are artifacts. The whole movie, of course, is an artifact. Yeah. But this idea that these images serve as a kind of smokescreen, where there's a world perhaps unseen behind them. Uh, it's part of, I suppose in my defense, I would say that, <laughs> that all imagery is ironic. Uh, imagery always masks things. And the, the, what we can do is to call attention through images of how we are deceived by them how we are influenced by them, how we are misdirected by them. And I think that's certainly one of the deepest themes behind standard operating procedure. You know, it's funny, uh, two 
great lines from two very different films of yours come to mind when I think about what you just said. Um, one is from Vernon, Florida, and, and one of the old guys you're interviewing tells a story. I'm probably going to uh, muck up the details here, but I think I'll get the gist right. He says there are some sailors out on the ocean, and one sure. of them, Albert Bitterling, and uh, they <laughs> see they see water all around them, and one sailor says, "There's a lot of water out there," and the other says, "Yeah," and that's only the top of it. <laughs> And that seems to me to be, I mean, you must have loved that when you heard it. Cause it, it well, of it, course I did, yes. It, it, it gets so so clearly at, at and not only the, a lot of the themes of Vernon, Florida, but of your lifelong obsessions, you know, with surface and, and what's beneath it. But then there's this unbelievably, wonderfully contrasting quote from Mr. Death by a chemist who's talking about, I'll give a little background on the film for our listeners, it's about uh, Fred Lucher, is it pronounced? Lucher? Fred Lucher. Lucher, excuse me, Lucher, who is this, you know, this guy who, who got embroiled in a, in, in a horrible controversy, a, a kind of um, self-styled uh, technician and chemist uh, and engineer uh, who uh, waded into the Holocaust denial scene uh, by visiting um, Auschwitz and, and running his own tests in which he claimed to have determined that there's no residue of cyanide gas in the gas chambers, and therefore people weren't slaughtered en masse in the gas chambers. Um, there's a chemist who, who you interview that completely debunks the, the tests that Lucher had done because Lucher took these rather large samples from these bricks, and they were all crushed up by the, uh, the lab and uh, mixed together when, in fact, cyanide, if it exists usually settles right on the very, very surface, and it would have been terribly diluted by smashing up these larger samples, and therefore you're not going to detect it. And he said, if you're going to go look for it, you're going to go look on the surface only. There's no reason to go deep, because it's not going to be there. Yes. <laughs> Does... I know that the the quote about all the water under the surface is definitely something you think about a lot, but what about this this view that you've got to just look at the surface sometimes? Well, I loved it. Yeah. (laughs) It's a great great quote, but thank you for noticing it. (laughs) Oh, it just jumped out. Um, You definitely have a knack for for getting these these remarkable statements out of people. Well, I hope. That's That's probably the most important aspect of my job. A good one-liner. <laughs> well, you're... I should go back. The only problem is I have to get some things done before the end of the week, and I, I, I should go. I could talk sometime in the future, but I just should go back to work today. And Errol did go back to work, and uh, we had to end the conversation there. But we picked up again just this past week, and we're going to hear that on the next edition of the Seventh Avenue Project when we delve deeper into the multi-track mind of Errol Morris. I hope you join me then. And before uh, we part ways today, just let me correct something I said earlier in the interview. I spoke of uh, the Thin Blue Line and the evidence that Errol Morrison covered in that film as having helped get a guy off of death row. Well, in fact, um, the man in question, Randall Dale Adams, had already had his sentence commuted from death to life in prison. So technically speaking, the film helped get him out of prison but not off death row. I'm Robert Polly, and this has been the 7th Avenue Project. You can learn more about the show and listen to past programs at our website, 7thAvenueProject.com. And I could take pencil and sit down and write. Catch.
this hand that, that one. At the same time. Two pencils. I've done that lots of times. 